Today is our third Sunday of Advent, and uh, so t- today we get to write the th- light the third candle in our Advent wreath, which is the candle of joy. Israel rejoiced when she was freed from exile and led back to Zion. Mary rejoiced at the news that she would carry Jesus in her womb. And we rejoice because the Father has sent his Son to deliver and reconcile us to him. Let's pray together. Holy Trinity, you are the source, cause, and object of our joy. Continue to stir up in us such joyful exultation for your name and glory that we cannot keep silent. May our joy compel us to proclaim your mighty works and saving acts to the whole world, that they might know your joy also. Amen. If you'll excuse me for one second, I'm going to take a drink of this, not in the microphone. I'm glad to have the opportunity to preach today. Um, I usually get the opportunity to preach during Advent, and uh, it's always a joy because uh, Advent and Christmas time are, it's my favorite time of the year, and I love rehearsing the story of Emmanuel, God with us, with all of you, and uh, it's, it's come to be a really important part of my life, and I'm, so I'm glad to be preaching today, and I'm glad that you all are here. Uh, a lot of us have been out the past several weeks, so it's good to see most of us uh, here, and uh, I love you guys, and I'm glad that, that you're here too. Um, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to end up there. We're not starting there, but we're going to end up there. Uh, so you have your Bibles or your uh, Bible apps. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. God is a lot of things, but I think one of the under, underappreciated aspects of his character is that God is a storyteller. Time and again throughout history, he's brought something to pass and then told his people to remember it, to talk about it, and to tell it to the next generation recount the story and as a result of this recounting as time moves along successive generations often realize deeper and even more complex implications for things that God did decades and centuries before they lived history is an intricate tapestry flawlessly woven to show the magnitude of God's glory and the steadfast love he has for his people And when we rehearse these stories over and over together, we are participating in that work that has gone on since the beginning and that will continue long after we are gone. It's in that spirit that we observe Advent and remember the waiting of God's people for the first coming of the Messiah, even as we wait for his second coming. It's in that spirit that the Old Testament is filled with foreshadowings of Jesus, these types or figures of Christ. And this is honestly one of my favorite things about Advent is to remember and, and reread all of the Old Testament prophecies that foretell of the coming of Jesus. Because it's not just this thing that happened, it's not just the next chapter of the story, it's deeply connected to everything God had been doing from the beginning. And I love that um, about Advent. So in our sermon series so far, we've already seen that Adam... Uh, and Isaac are among these figures that foreshadowed Christ. And if you spend some time on your own studying this, it's not just like the four guys that we picked out to preach on for the sermon series. It's 
those four plus a dozen more plus the, the tabernacle and the temple and uh, this sacrifice and that sacrifice and the Passover, it's, it's so many things. Um, you're never, we're never going to plumb the depths of how much God loves us and how intricate his plan is. And uh, so I love that we're, we're examining those things again in Advent. Today we're going to look at Moses because, Mo- because Jesus is the true and better Moses. If you were around for our series in Exodus a few years ago, you remember that Moses lived a, a really remarkable life. Um, and so many things in his life hint at the coming Messiah that it's difficult to just focus on one. Uh, a few examples. Moses was born a slave and grew up as royalty. Jesus was the king of all kings and grew up as a commoner. Moses saw the injustice of his people, and he killed a man to try to stop it. Jesus saw the injustice of his people, and he laid his own life down. Moses fled from Egypt so he wouldn't be killed for murdering a guy. Jesus fled to Egypt to escape being murdered by Herod. God brought Moses back to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. And Jesus came back to Israel to lead his people out of slavery. Moses led Israel in instituting the Passover, and Jesus himself was the Passover lamb. God used Moses to split the Red Sea to let his people through when they had no way out. Jesus tore the curtain of the temple, giving access to God by faith. Moses received the law, and Jesus kept it perfectly on his people's behalf. Moses judged the people, but he needed help. Jesus will judge the living and the dead because he alone is the one worthy to judge. Moses told Israel of the manna, and Jesus was the bread of heaven. Moses held up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that whoever might look to it would be saved from the deadly snake bites. Jesus was lifted up on the cross, that whoever would look to him in faith would be saved from sin. Moses asked God to blot him out of his book if he wouldn't forgive Israel. And Jesus took on that punishment for his people so that they would be forgiven. There are so many connections between Moses and Jesus, but today we're going to camp out around the idea that Moses was the ultimate prophet and teacher of Israel. He was kind of the the archetype for every prophet that would come after him. He was the mediator between God and his people. And Jesus was the true and final prophet, the once-for-all mediator between God and man. The people of Israel viewed Moses as the ultimate prophet and teacher, and I think that's partly because he spent more time in God's presence than maybe any other human up to that point. And I don't have, you know, uh, research to back this up. Maybe uh, any other figure in scripture, like as far as being in the actual presence of God, uh, Moses was the dude. Uh, he, uh, God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to the people with Aaron's help. Moses went up on Mount Sinai several times to meet with the Lord as he appeared in a cloud with fire and lightning. He ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. He spent 40 uninterrupted days and nights up there receiving the law of the Lord, and he's the one who brought it back down and taught it to the people. Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting, and Exodus 33:11 says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when he would come out, his face would be physically glowing so much that he had to wear a veil so that people could stand to be around him. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Scripture. 
which contained the origins of humanity, the winding story of Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land, and the law. Moses was so closely associated with the law that he received from God that the law was referred to as the law of Moses, or just simply Moses. People would quote the law, and they would say, Moses said. The people held Moses in the highest of regards, and rightly so, because Moses, flawed as he was, loved the Lord his God, and he loved the people of Israel. Pastor David Schrock wrote a really helpful article uh, about this, and he said that in this unique position, Moses is recognized as deliverer, covenant mediator, priest, and ruler. Moses is larger than life status as prophet was designed by God as a template from which all other prophets would be measured. So in Deuteronomy 18, as Moses is in the middle of explaining the law to God's people, he proclaims this prophecy that Blake read just a minute ago. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them. He shall speak to them all that I command him. At Mount Sinai, the people were like, please, like, we can't take the voice of the Lord. This is too much for us. It's too terrifying. And God was like, you know, Moses, they're right. So I'm going to send another prophet. He's going to be kind of like you, but he's going to speak my words to them in a way that they can hear. This prophecy was well known and revered in Israel. And at the end of Deuteronomy, just to clarify, there was a short epilogue added after Moses' death. And it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. There were great prophets after Moses, but none who spoke face to face with God, none who did the signs and wonders he did. And so the people of Israel anticipated this coming prophet, the one who would be like Moses. So fast forward to John the Baptist. He was the first prophet since Malachi, and it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophet. So in John chapter 1, the Pharisees are talking to John the Baptist and they're saying, so are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet we've been waiting for? And John said, no, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John made it clear that he was making way for the prophet, the Messiah. And Jesus, the prophet, was about to begin speaking to his people. So as we look at how Jesus is the true and better Moses, I'll start with this. Uh, Our first point is that Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'm not sure how far your MCs have gotten with catechisms, um, but uh, one of the questions that we've gotten to is, what did Christ undertake in the covenant of grace? 
suffer the punishment due to their sins. Yes. Uh, what did Christ undertake in the covenant of grace? It's to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due to their sins. So the first part of his fulfillment is that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed the law. Moses received the law and taught it to the people of Israel, but even he couldn't keep it. This is why the system of sacrifices was needed, to atone for the sins of the people who could not keep the law. So when Jesus came, he kept the entire law perfectly on our behalf and then offered himself as the spotless lamb of God. He testified of this in John 8, 29. He said, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, and who honestly had a really big mouth, he lived with Jesus for three years, and he saw every aspect of Jesus' life. He saw every way in which Jesus could have broken the law of Moses. And he said this in 1 Peter 2, which we'll probably get to I don't know, next fall sometime. Uh, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself who judges, to him who judges justly. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From the time of his birth, when his parents kept the law for him, when they kept the law on his behalf, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him at the temple because he was the firstborn and there was a certain sacrifice that was required of the firstborn. From that time to the time of his arrest, when Pilate told the crowd he couldn't find anything wrong with him, to the moment he was nailed to the cross and he asked the Father to forgive his murderers, Christ perfectly kept the law of Moses. He obeyed the Father and he was faithful in all that he did. We're going to spend a good time, a good bit of time today in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the middle of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5.17. He said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This was the whole point of him coming to earth. It wasn't that the big, scary Old Testament God had got himself into a pickle because he didn't think through the whole unkeepable law thing. The law was about Jesus himself before Moses got up the mountain to hear about it. Jesus was the only one who ever could have kept the law, and that was the whole point. The law showed God's holiness and man's sinfulness. So when Jesus came, he came to fulfill the law on man's behalf. He was the first human to reflect God's holiness perfectly when confronted with the demands of the law because he's the one who wrote it but he didn't just keep the law he didn't just obey God's commands he embodied them he embodied the law he brought the commands of the law to life he fulfilled the letter and the spirit of the law in real live three-dimensional human flesh for everyone to see and the word became flesh John 1 says and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The most effective things that teachers can do when they're trying to get somebody to understand something is to practice what they preach. 
When I was learning guitar, I spent a lot of time listening really closely to records and trying to figure out all the chords and the riffs, and it was a really good thing for me, and I learned a lot that way, but there was inevitably something that I would miss. There was some little part that I couldn't quite decode just by listening to it. So <clears throat> back in the 1900s, if, uh, if I would hear that one of my favorite bands was going to be on The Tonight Show or Saturday Night Live or something, I would program the VCR to record it onto a VHS tape so that I could go back and watch it over and over and over again. Because when I'm watching them play it, there's no doubt about what they're doing. They're standing there in all their glory with their Les Pauls hung to their knees, and I can see where their fingers are going. I know exactly what they're trying to do, and it clears things up for me. Like, now I know what to do. And I could see there was no doubt, there was no confusion, because in a way the veil had been lifted. I could see them doing it. And that's what Jesus did for us. He brought the law to life so that people could see what it looked like to actually keep it. So that people could see how far off the mark they really were. So that people could see how much they needed a savior. And so that we could receive the gift of salvation when we realize that we can't keep the law on our own. He fulfilled the law. An interesting thing about the Gospel of Matthew is that fulfillment is a big theme. Matthew intentionally tells the story of Jesus in a way that illustrates his fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. He starts with Jesus' genealogy to show that he was born of David's line. He connects the birth of Christ to Isaiah's prophecy about a virgin giving birth. He connects Jesus' birth in Bethlehem with Micah's prophecy about that. He connects Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt with Jesus with Hosea's prophecy. He connects Herod's murder of all the male children under two in Bethlehem with Jeremiah's prophecy. And on and on and on, he shows that though Jesus was initiating the new covenant, he was the culmination of God's promises of old. He was the one they'd been waiting for all along. Patrick Schreiner from Western Seminary wrote a book about this, about this gospel called Matthew, Disciple and Scribe. And he hones in further on all the overt and subtle ways that Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. He said that Moses never comes out and says, Jesus is the new Moses, but that might be because Matthew isn't making a legal argument like Paul would. He was telling a story, and his devices in telling the story are more subtle. Schreiner says, although Matthew never comes out and explicitly says that Jesus is the new Moses, the imagery he uses is clear. Jesus is the new prophet who establishes the new covenant, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Beyond that, Matthew presents Jesus' teaching by organizing it into five discourses, which some have argued were meant to intentionally mirror the five books of the Pentateuch. And Jesus' first discourse of teaching, which we know is the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't appear until after, the John, after John the Baptist is arrested. Something had ended, and something new was beginning. So Matthew follows up the end of John's ministry with the first teaching from the prophet of prophets, the teacher of teachers. Jesus had been preaching and healing and casting out demons, and great crowds of people had begun to follow him. So this is where we're picking up. At the very end, the last verse of Matthew chapter 4, going into Matthew chapter 5, it says this. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, We'll get into what he said in just a minute. But notice how Matthew sets up the Sermon on the Mount. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. According to scholars who know more about this than I do, uh, the phrase up on the mountain was used in the Greek Old Testament only three times. And all three times it referred to Moses going up on Mount Sinai where he received the law and met with God. Matthew even said the mountain. He went up on the mountain, even though he hadn't specified which mountain he was referring to. He was intentionally alluding to Moses and comparing Jesus with him. So we're going to continue into Matthew 5 and take a brief glance at the Sermon on the Mount because Christ not only fulfilled the law by obeying it and embodying it, he also clarified the law of Moses. That's our next point. Christ clarified the law of Moses. We've already seen that Jesus told the people he had not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. So throughout the life of Jesus, you see him quoting and living out the law and the prophets. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he countered him with scriptures. When the Pharisees tried to catch him in some sort of theological blunder, he responded with scripture. When he was dying on the cross, he spoke the words of scripture. And the way Jesus taught and lived out scripture fundamentally changed the world. The Sermon on the Mount is a prime example of how Jesus not only clung to scripture, but clarified its meaning. The dominant teachers of the day had boiled the law of Moses down to a list of rules that you could keep to make God like you. And a lot of these rules were extra-biblical interpretations of scripture. In other words, they were man-made rules that give the appearance of holiness. They made a version of the law that they could appear to keep well enough to gain superiority over those who couldn't. They were rules that didn't require a change of heart. We've all seen kids who are obeying, you know, after they've kind of gotten in trouble. Or they say, they say yes, ma'am, as if the devil himself resides in their soul, right? They're going through the form of the right thing to do, but you can tell that they've missed the point. And that's what had happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had missed the point. And they were teaching people this false version of what it meant to love and obey God. And many people were believing them. So Jesus' first teaching was to combat these lies and get down to the heart of the law. Similarly to how Moses' teaching of the law begins with the Ten Commandments, Jesus' teaching began with the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and on and on. He names people who might not generally be thought of as blessed and says they are blessed. Those who are low are not necessarily low because they're on the outs with God, like the Pharisees would assume, and like a lot of people who claim to be Christians assume these days. God meets those who have been brought low in a special way. Then he uses salt and light as examples of how God's people should exist in the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you've got a handful of salt that's lost its taste, it won't season your food. Excuse me. It won't preserve anything. It's useless. And that's the point he's making about the legalistic false religion of the Pharisees. It has the appearance of being salt, but it has lost what makes it valuable, and that is faith. The Pharisees' moralism didn't require faith. It didn't require dependence on God. It actually had nothing to do with God at all, except it was just trying to make godless people look holy. 
Later in Matthew 23, Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is what had been made of God's law, a hollow, artificial farce. So when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's saying that he's come to set things right. After he makes that statement, he says in Matthew 5, 19 and 20, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because it really isn't righteousness at all. And that's one of the surprising things I think that people listening to him would have noticed. They thought, well, how can I be more righteous than them? And Jesus' point was, they're not righteous. Another one of our catechism questions says, can anyone be saved by his own righteousness? And the answer is no. No one is good enough for God. And that's Jesus' point when he says, uh, whoever does these and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's him. He's like, I'm the one who's going to do it. And I'm the one who's going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you think you have for righteousness, it's not it. Then Jesus launches into the you've heard it saids, where he mentions important Old Testament laws and then expounds upon them. He starts with, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Murder is a sin, but the malicious anger that it springs from is just as bad. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That ups the ante quite a bit. He goes on, he talks about divorce and taking oaths and retaliation and loving your neighbors and your enemies. He's digging deep into people's hearts and he's saying, don't you see? Righteousness, real righteousness goes beyond appearance and is rooted in the very core of your being. If your soul has not been changed by God, then your appearance doesn't matter. What is your motivation? You've heard it said and you've seen it practiced that your righteousness has to be clear for all to see. But I'm telling you that God looks at the heart. Jesus' point is that this is what the law of Moses was about the whole time. God was always concerned with the heart. Not murdering and not committing adultery was, were just the low-hanging fruit from that tree. God loved his people and wanted to rid them of the poison within. When you look at the law for what it truly is, you see, and you see how deep it really goes, you see two things, that it is a reflection of the holy character of God himself, and that there is no way for us to keep it. We need a savior. We always needed a savior. What compassion for God to show us this. We never deserved the patience of God to tell us over and over again how much we needed him. We never deserved the grace of God shown in Christ. And yet here is Jesus, again, patiently and lovingly walking through it with us, explaining in the clearest terms possible how deep our sinfulness goes and how much we need the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up on the mountain and connected Old Testament law with the new covenant that he would soon inaugurate. He showed it for what it really was and how it pointed to him all along. 
And at the end of Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And that brings us to our last point, which is that Christ is the authority of the law of Moses. Christ is the authority of the law of Moses. When Moses received the law, he came down the mountain and taught it to the people. And there was no greater authority among them because Moses heard these commands from the mouth of God himself. Moses was a judge for the people of Israel, and among them there was no greater judge of the law because he was the mouthpiece of God to his people. So when Jesus took on flesh to become God with us, When he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, the true and final authority on the matter was coming to set things straight. Imagine George Washington walking into your class on the American Revolution, or William Shakespeare walking into your English lit class. The crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was the ultimate authority. He wrote the book. There was no one greater for them to hear from on the matters of the law than the source himself. His presence on the scene and his teaching made the religious authorities of the day look like children dressed up for Halloween. It was obvious even to them because they kept demanding Jesus to tell them by what authority he was saying and doing these things. They could see he was higher than they were. They wanted to speak to his manager. Who told you that you could speak that way? They were threatened by his greatness. Even though he was a poor, unremarkable-looking man, Because when he spoke about the law and the prophets, there was no hiding his authority. There was no masking his eminence. My favorite response of Jesus in one of these situations is John 8. Jesus was at the temple, and there were men there who were arguing with him about something. And they were like, are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? And he said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, which I think might have been funny to watch him do. Abraham saw the baby in the manger in Bethlehem, and he rejoiced, and Jesus knew it. Do we realize the magnitude of this? Like, do we truly grasp the significance of what we celebrate at Christmas? God himself, because of the great love with which he loves us, because he is rich in mercy, laid aside his power and his majesty and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the true and better Moses because the one who gave the law is greater than the one who taught it. Moses was a glimpse of Jesus as teacher and authority, but Jesus is the full embodiment of that glimpse. And he will judge according to this law, according to his righteousness. There is no higher authority to whom we can appeal. Jesus is it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will have to reckon with his holiness, his power, and his love. 
what will we do with Jesus? His coming into the world through that faithful girl named Mary on that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was more wonderful and more terrible than we can possibly comprehend. As the authority, Jesus will one day judge the living and the dead. We will give an account of our lives one way or the other. A lot of preachers through the years have used the very real um, coming judgment to attempt to scare people into trusting Christ, and that's really a bummer. Trusting in Christ for salvation isn't something we try to manipulate people into. But in spite of that, it's true that Christ will bring judgment, and we have to be ready for that day. Because either Jesus took our full punishment on the cross, or we will bear it for all eternity. So I have a couple of takeaways for us as we close. And the first one is that uh, is this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we say that Jesus is? We either believe him to be the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the perfect lamb of God, the risen savior of the world, and the king above every king, or we don't. And it all hinges on this. In your eyes, who is Jesus? It's the most important question that we'll ever answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? And after we answer that, we, ask, we have to ask ourselves, I think, what does our obedience look like? Are we believing and obeying the commands of God at a heart level? Or are we keeping a law that will give the appearance of some sort of righteousness? Are we whitewashed tombs? Or are we flourishing trees that bear the fruit of the Spirit? Because we may be able to fool our friends, our family. I'm not going to fool Jesus. You couldn't fool him. You can't now. It's important for us to spend some time asking, these selves, asking ourselves these questions. As we marvel at the story of Christ's birth, as we celebrate his love for us, let us remember who he became and who he still is. And let us consider how we should live in response to him. Let's pray. Jesus, help us, help us to see you for who you truly are. Help us to adore you for who you truly are. Lord, you kept the law perfectly for us, and you taught it to us perfectly. We didn't deserve all the chances that you've given us. We don't deserve your grace, but you give it to us anyways. Lord, help us to understand the magnitude of that, the gravity of that and to worship you because of it. Lord, you are with us and you love us. And you show us that again and again. And as we rehearse these stories, as we think these things over again in the season of Advent, in the season of Christmas, help us to give you more and more glory for what you've done and what you are doing in us. Lord, we love you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.